0: Chapter 5 of The Boy Scout and Other Stories for Boys by Richard Harding Davis. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 5 The Bar Sinister, Part 1. Preface When this story first appeared, the writer received letters of two kinds one asking a question, and the other making a statement. The question was, whether there was any foundation of truth in the story. The statement challenged him to say that there was. The letters seem to show that a large proportion of readers prefer their dose of fiction with a sweetening of fact. This is written to furnish that condiment and to answer the question and the statement. In the Dog World, the original of the Bull Terrier in the story is known as Edgewood Cold Steel, and to his intimates as Kidd. His father was Lord Minto, a thoroughbred bull-terrier, well-known in Canada, but the story of Kidd's life is that his mother was a black-and-tan named Vic. She was a lady of doubtful pedigree. Among her offspring, by Lord Minto, so i have been often informed by many canadian dog fanciers breeders and exhibitors was the only white puppy kid in a litter of black and tans he made his first appearance in the show world in nineteen hundred in toronto where under the judging of mr charles h mason he was easily first during that year when he came to our kennels and in the two years following, he carried off many blue ribbons and cups at nearly every first-class show in the country. The other dog, Jimmy Jocks, who in the book was his friend and mentor, was in real life his friend and companion, Woodcock Jumbo, or Jaggers, an aristocratic son of a long line of English champions. He has gone to that place where some day all good dogs must go. In this autobiography I have tried to describe Kidd as he really is, and this year when he again strives for blue ribbons, I trust should the gentle reader see him at any of the bench shows, he will give him a friendly pat and make his acquaintance. He will find his advances met with a polite and gentle courtesy. THE AUTHOR Part one. The master was walking most unsteady, his legs tripping each other. After the fifth or sixth round, my legs often go the same way. But even when the master's legs bend and twist a bit, you mustn't think he can't reach you. Indeed, that is the time he kicks most frequent. So I kept behind him in the shadow, or ran in the middle of the street. He stopped at many public-houses with swinging doors, those doors that are cut so high from the sidewalk that you can look in under them and see if the master is inside. At night, when I peep beneath them, the man at the counter will see me first and say, Here's the kid, Jerry. Come to take you home. Get a move on you," and the master will stumble out and follow me. It's lucky for us I'm so white, for no matter how dark the night, he can always see me ahead, just out of reach of his boot. At night the master certainly does seem most amazing. Sometimes he sees two or four of me, and walks in a circle. So that I have to take him by the leg of his trousers and lead him into the right road. One night when he was very nasty tempered and I was coaxing him along, two men passed us and one of them says, Look at that brute! and the other says, Which? and they both laugh. The master he cursed them good and proper. But this night whenever we stopped at a public house, The master's pals left it, and went on with us to the next. They spoke quite civil to me, and when the master tried a flying kick, they gives him a shove. Do you want us to lose our money?" says the pals. I had had nothing to eat for a day and a night, and just before we set out, the master gives me a wash under the hydrant. Whenever I am locked up until all the slop pans in our alley are empty, and made to take a bath, and the master's pals speak civil and feel my ribs, I know something is going to happen. And that night, when every time they see a policeman under a lamp-post, they dodged across the street, and when, at the last, one of them picked me up and hid me under his jacket, I began to tremble for I knew what it meant. It meant that I was to fight again for the master. I don't fight because I like fighting. I fight because if I didn't, the other dog would find my throat, and the master would lose his stakes, and I would be very sorry for him, and ashamed. Dogs can pass me, and I can pass dogs, and I'd never pick a fight with none of them. When I see two dogs standing on their hind legs in the streets, clawing each other's ears, and snapping for each other's windpipes, or howling and swearing and rolling in the mud, I feel sorry they should act so, and pretend not to notice. If he let me, I'd like to pass the time of day with every dog I meet. But there's something about me that no nice dog can abide. When I trot up to nice dogs, nodding and grinning to make friends, they always tell me to be off. Go to the devil, they bark at me. Get out! And when I walk away, they shout, Mongrel and Gutter Dog, and sometimes, after my back is turned, they rush me. I could kill most of them with three shakes, breaking the backbone of the little ones and squeezing the throat of the big ones but what's the good? They are nice dogs. That's why I try to make up to them. And though it's not for them to say it, I am a street dog, and if I try to push into the company of my betters, I suppose it's their right to teach me my place. Of course, they don't know I'm the best fighting bull terrier of my weight in Montreal. That's why it wouldn't be fair for me to take notice of what they shout. They don't know that if I once locked my jaws on them, I'd carry away whatever I touched. The night I fought Kelly's white rat, I wouldn't loosen up until the master made a noose in my leash and strangled me. And as for that Ottawa dog, if the handlers hadn't thrown red pepper down my nose, I never would have let go of him. I don't think the handlers treated me quite right that time. But maybe they didn't know the Ottawa dog was dead. I did. I learned my fighting from my mother when I was very young. We slept in a lumber yard on the river front, and by day hunted for food along the wharves. When we got it, the other tramp dogs would try to take it off us, and then it was wonderful to see mother fly at them and drive them away. All I know of fighting I learned from Mother, watching her picking the ash heaps for me when I was too little to fight for myself. No one ever was so good to me as Mother. When it snowed and the ice was in the St. Lawrence, she used to hunt alone and bring me back new bones, and she'd sit and laugh to see me trying to swallow em whole. I was just a puppy then. My teeth was falling out. When I was able to fight, we kept the whole river range to ourselves. I had the genuine long, punishing jaw, so Mother said, and there wasn't a man or a dog that dared worry us. Those were happy days, those were, and we lived well, share and share alike, and when we wanted a bit of fun, we chased the fat old wharf-rats. My, how they would squeal! Then the trouble came. It was no trouble to me. I was too young to care then. But mother took it so to heart that she grew ailing and wouldn't go abroad with me by day. It was the same old scandal that they're always bringing up against me. I was so young then that I didn't know. I couldn't see any difference between mother and other mothers but one day a pack of curs we drove off snarled back some new names at her and mother dropped her head and ran just as though they had whipped us after that she wouldn't go out with me except in the dark and one day she went away and never came back and though i hunted for her in every court and alley and back street of montreal i never found her one night A month after Mother ran away, I asked Guardian, the old blind mastiff, whose master is the night watchman on our slip, what it all meant, and he told me. Every dog in Montreal knows, he says, except you, and every master knows, so I think it's time you knew. Then he tells me that my father, who had treated Mother so bad, was a great and noble gentleman from London. Your father had twenty-two registered ancestors, had your father, Old Guardian says, and in him was the best bull-terrier blood of England, the most ancientest, the most royal, the winning blue-ribbon blood that breeds champions. He had sleepy pink eyes and thin pink lips and he was as white all over as his own white teeth, and under his white skin you could see his muscles, hard and smooth, like the links of a steel chain. When your father stood still and tipped his nose in the air, it was just as though he was saying, Oh, yes, you common dogs and men, you may well stare. It must be a rare treat for you Colonials to see real English royalty. He certainly was pleased with hisself. was your father. He looked just as proud and haughty as one of them stone dogs in Victoria Park, them as is cut out of white marble. And you're like him, says the old Mastiff. By that, of course, meaning you're white, same as him. That's the only likeness. But, you see, the trouble is, kid—well, you see, kid, the trouble is your mother—' "'That will do,' I said, for then I understood without his telling me, and I got up and walked away, holding my head and tail high in the air. But I was oh so miserable, and I wanted to see mother that very minute and tell her that I didn't care. Mother is what I am, a street dog. There's no royal blood in Mother's veins, nor is she like that father of mine. Nor, and that's the worst, she's not even like me. For while I, when I'm washed for a fight, am as white as clean snow, she, and this is our trouble, she, my mother, is a black and tan. When mother hid herself from me, I was twelve months old and able to take care of myself, and as, after mother left me, the wharves were never the same, I moved uptown and met the master. Before he came, lots of other men-folks had tried to make up to me and to whistle me home, but they either tried patting me or coaxing me with a piece of meat so I didn't take to him. But one day the master pulled me out of a street fight by the hind legs and kicked me good. "'You want to fight, do you?' says he. "'I'll give you all the fighting you want,' he says, and kicks me again. So I knew he was my master, and I followed him home. Since that day I've pulled off many fights for him, and they've brought dogs from all over the province to have a go at me. But up to that night none under thirty pounds had ever downed me. But that night, so soon as they carried me into the ring, I saw the dog was overweight and that I was no match for him. It was asking too much of a puppy. The master should have known I couldn't do it. Not that I mean to blame the master, for when sober, which he sometimes was, though not, as you may say, his habit. He was most kind to me, and let me out to find food, if I could get it, and only kicked me when I didn't pick him up at night and lead him home. But kicks will stiffen the muscles, and starving a dog so as to get him ugly-tempered for a fight may make him nasty, but it's weakening to his insides, and it causes the legs to wobble. The ring was in a hall back of a public-house. There was a red-hot, white-washed stove in one corner, and the ring in the other. I lay in the master's lap, wrapped in my blanket, and, spite of the stove, shivering awful. But I always shiver before a fight. I can't help getting excited. While the men-folks were a-flashing their money and taking their last drink at the bar, a little Irish groom in gaiters came up to me, and give me the back of his hand to smell, and scratched me behind the ears. "'You poor little pup,' says he, "'you haven't no show,' he says. That brute in the tap-room, he'll eat your heart out." "'That's what you think,' says the master, snarling. "'I'll lay you a quid the kids chews him up.'" The groom, he shook his head but kept looking at me so sorry-like that I begun to get a bit sad myself. He seemed like he couldn't bear to leave off a patten of me, and he says, speaking low just like he would to a man-folk, Well, good luck to you, little pup, which I thought so civil of him that I reached up and licked his hand. I don't do that to many men, and the master, he knew I didn't, and took it dreadful. "'What have you got on the back of your hand?' he says, jumping up. "'Soap,' says the groom, quick as a rat. "'That's more than you've got on yours. Do you want the smell of it?' And he sticks his fist under the master's nose. But the pals pushed in between them. "'He tried to poison the kid,' shouts the master. Oh, one one fight at a time,' says the referee. "'Get into the ring, Jerry. We're waiting.' So we went into the ring. I never could just remember what did happen in that ring. He give me no time to spring. He fell on me like a horse. I couldn't keep my feet against him, and though, as I saw, he could get his hold when he liked, he wanted to chew me over a bit first. I was wondering if they'd be able to pry him off me when, in the third round, he took his hold and I begun to drown, just as I did when I fell into the river off the Red Sea Slip. He closed deeper and deeper on my throat, and everything went black and red and bursting. And then, when I was sure I were dead, the handlers pulled him off, and the master give me a kick that brought me to, but I couldn't move none, or even wink both eyes being shut with lumps. He's a cur, yells the master, a sneaking, cowardly cur. He lost the fight for me, says he, because he's a blank, 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 cowardly cur. And he kicks me again in the lower ribs, so that I go sliding across the sawdust. That's gratitude for you, yells the master. I fed that dog, and nussed that dog, and housed him like a prince, and now he puts his tail between his legs, and sells me out, he does. He's a coward. I've done with him, I am. I'd sell him for a pipeful of tobacco." He picked me up by the tail, and swung me for the men-folks to see. "'Does any gentleman here want to buy a dog,' he says, to make into sausage-meat,' he says. That's all he's good for then i heard the little irish groom say i'll give you ten bob for the dog and another voice says ah don't you do it the dog's same as dead maybe he is dead ten shillings says the master and his voice sobers a bit make it two pounds and he's yours but the pals rushed in again don't you be a fool jerry they say You'll be sorry for this when you're sober. The kid's worth a fiver." One of my eyes was not so swelled up as the other, and as I hung by my tail, I opened it and saw one of the pals take the groom by the shoulder. "'You ought to give him five pounds for that dog, mate,' he says. "'That's no ordinary dog.' That dog's got good blood in him, that dog has. Why, his father! That very dog's father! I thought he never would go on. He waited like he wanted to be sure the groom was listening. That very dog's father, says the pal, is Regent Royal, son of Champion Regent Monarch, Champion Bull Terrier of England for four years. I was sore and torn and chewed most awful, but what the pal said sounded so fine that I wanted to wag my tail, only couldn't, owing to my hanging from it. But the master calls out. Yes, his father was Regent Royal. Who's saying he wasn't? But the pup's a cowardly cur. That's what his pup is. And why? I'll tell you why. Because his mother was a black-and-tan street dog. That's why. I don't see how I got the strength, but some way I threw myself out of the master's grip and fell at his feet, and turned over and fastened all my teeth in his ankle, just across the bone. When I woke, after the pals had kicked me off him, I was in the smoking-car of a railroad train, lying in the lap of the little groom, and he was rubbing my open wounds with a greasy yellow stuff, exquisite to the smell and most agreeable to lick off. Part two. Well, what's your name, Nolan? Well, Nolan, these references are satisfactory, said the young gentleman, my new master called Mr. Wyndham, sir. I'll take you on as second man. You can begin to-day. My new master shuffled his feet and put his finger to his forehead. Thank you, sir, says he. Then he choked like he had swallowed a fishbone. I have a little dog, sir, says he. You can't keep him, says Mr. Wyndham, sir. Very short. He's only a puppy, sir, says my new master. He wouldn't go outside the stable, sir. It's not that, says Mr. Wyndham, sir. I have a large kennel of very fine dogs. They're the best of their breed in America. I don't allow strange dogs on the premises." The master shakes his head and motions me with his cap, and I crept out from behind the door. "'I'm sorry, sir,' says the master. "'Then I can't take the place. I can't get along without the dogs, sir.' Mr. Wyndham, sir, looked at me that fierce that I guessed he was going to whip me, so I turned over on my back and begged with my legs and tail. Why, "'You beat him,' says Mr. Wyndham, sir, very stern. "'No fear,' the master says, getting very red. "'The party I bought him off taught him that. "'He never learnt that from me. "'He picked me up in his arms, and to show Mr. Wyndham, sir, "'how well I loved the master, I bit his chin and hands. "'Mr. Wyndham, sir, turned over the letters the master had given him, Well, these references certainly are very strong, he says. I guess I'll let the dog stay. Only see you keep him away from the kennels, or you'll both go. Thank you, sir, says the master, grinning like a cat when she's safe behind the area railing. He's not a bad bull terrier, says Mr. Wyndham, sir, feeling my head. Not that I know much about the smooth-coated breeds. My dogs are St. Bernard's. He stopped patting me and held up my nose. What's the matter with his ears, he says? They're chewed to pieces. Is this a fighting-dog, he asks, quick and rough-like? I could have laughed. If he hadn't been holding my nose, I certainly would have had a good grin at him. Me the best under thirty pounds in the province of Quebec, and him asking if I was a fighting-dog. I ran to the master, and hung down my head modest-like, waiting for him to tell my list of battles. But the master, he coughs in his cap most painful. "'Fightin' dog, sir,' he cries. Lord bless you, sir! The kid don't know the word. He's just a puppy, sir, same as you see—a pet dog, so to speak. He's a regular old lady's lap-dog, the kid is.' Well. You keep him away from my St. Bernard's, says Mr. Wyndham, sir, or they might make a mouthful of him. Yes, sir, that they might, says the master, but when we gets outside he slaps his knee and laughs inside hisself, and winks at me most sociable. The master's new home was in the country, in a province they called Long Island. There was a high stone wall about his home, with big iron gates to it same as Godfrey's Brewery, and there was a house with five red roofs, and the stables where I lived was cleaner than the aerated bakery-shop. And then there was the kennels. But they was like nothing else in this world that I ever see. For the first days I couldn't sleep of nights for fear some one would catch me lying in such a cleaned-up place, and would chase me out of it and when I did fall to sleep, I'd dream I was back in the old master's attic, shivering under the rusty stove, which never had no coals in it, with the master flat on his back on the cold floor with his clothes on. And I'd wake up scared and whimpering, and find myself on the new master's cot with his hand on the quilt beside me, and I'd see the glow of the big stove and hear the high-quality horses below-stairs stamping in their straw-lined boxes, and I'd snoop the sweet smell of hay and harness-soap and go to sleep again. The stables was my jail, so the master said, but I don't ask no better home than that jail. Now, kid, says he, sitting on the top of a bucket upside down, you've got to understand this. When I whistle, it means you're not to go out of this here yard. These stables is your jail. If you leave em, I'll have to leave em too, and over the seas, in the county mayo, an old mother will have to leave her bit of a cottage. For two pounds I must be sending her every month, or she'll have naught to eat nor no thatch over her head. I can't lose my place, kid, so see you don't lose it for me. You must keep away from the kennels," says he. They're not for the likes of you. The kennels are for the quality. I wouldn't take a litter of them woolly dogs for one wag of your tail, kid, but for all that they are your betters, same as the gentry up in the big house are my betters. I know my place, and keep away from the gentry, and you keep away from the champions. So I never goes out of the stables. All day I just lay in the sun on the stone flags, licking my jaws and watching the grooms wash down the carriages, and the only care I had was to see they didn't get gay and turn the hose on me. There wasn't even a single rat to plague me. Such stables I never did see. "'Nolan,' says the head groom "'some day that dog of yours will give you the slip. You can't keep a street-dog tied up all his life. It's against his nature. The head-groom is a nice old gentleman, but he doesn't know everything. Just as though I'd been a street-dog because I liked it. As if I'd rather poke for my victuals in ash-heaps than have em handed me in a wash-basin, and would sooner bite and fight than be polite and sociable. If I'd had mother there, I couldn't have asked for nothing more. But I'd think of her snooping in the gutters, or freezing of nights under the bridges, or, what's worst of all, running through the hot streets with her tongue down, so wild and crazy for a drink that the people would shout, Mad Dog! at her and stone her. Water's so good that I don't blame the men-folks for locking it up inside their houses. But when the hot days come, I think they might remember that those are the dog days, and leave a little water outside in a trough, like they do for the horses. Then we wouldn't go mad, and the policemen wouldn't shoot us. I had so much of everything I wanted that it made me think a lot of the days when I hadn't nothing, and if I could have given what I had to mother, as she used to share with me, I'd have been the happiest dog in the land. Not that I wasn't happy then, and most grateful to the master, too, and if I'd only minded him, the trouble wouldn't have come again. But one day the coachman says that the little lady they called Miss Dorothy had come back from school, and that same morning she runs over to the stables to pat her ponies, and she sees me. Oh, what a nice little, white little dog," said she. Whose little dog are you?" says she. That's my dog, miss, says the master. His name is Kid. And I ran up to her most polite and licks her finger, for I never see so pretty and kind a lady. You must come with me and call on my new puppies, says she, picking me up in her arms and starting off with me. Oh, but please, miss! cries Nolan, Mr. Wyndham give orders that the kid's not to go to the kennels. That'll be all right, says the little lady. They're my kennels, too, and the puppies will like to play with him. You wouldn't believe me if I was to tell you of the style of them quality dogs. If I hadn't seen it myself, I wouldn't have believed it neither. The Viceroy of Canada don't live no better. There was forty of them but each one had his own house and a yard, most exclusive, and a cot and a drinking-basin all to himself. They had servants standing round waiting to feed them when they was hungry, and valets to wash them, and they had their hair combed and brushed like the grooms must when they go out on the box. Even the puppies had overcoats with their names on em in blue letters, and the name of each of those they called champions was painted up fine over his front door, just like it was a public-house or a veterinary's. They were the biggest St. Bernards I ever did see. I could have walked under them if they'd have let me, but they were very proud and haughty dogs, and looked only once at me and then sniffed in the air the little lady's own dog was an old gentleman bulldog. He'd come along with us, and when he notices how taken aback I was with all I see, he turned quite kind and affable, and showed me about. Jimmy Jocks, Miss Dorothy called him, but owing to his weight, he walked most dignified and slow, waddling like a duck, as you might say, and looked much too proud and handsome for such a silly name. That's the runway, and that's the trophy-house, says he to me, and that over there is the hospital, where you have to go if you get distemper, and the vet gives you beastly medicine. And which of these is your house, sir? asked I, wishing to be respectful. But he looked that hurt and haughty. I don't live in the kennels," says he, most contemptuous. I am a house-dog. I sleep in Miss Dorothy's room. And at lunch I'm let in with the family, if the visitors don't mind. They most always do, but they're too polite to say so. Besides, says he, smiling most condescending, visitors are always afraid of me. It's because I'm so ugly, says he. I suppose, says he, screwing up his wrinkles and speaking very slow and impressive, I suppose I'm the ugliest bulldog in America. And as he seemed to be so pleased to think hisself so, I said, Yes, sir, you certainly are the ugliest ever, I see," at which he nodded his head, most approving. But I couldn't hurt him, as you say," he goes on, though I hadn't said nothing like that, being too polite. I'm too old, he says. I haven't any teeth. The last time one of those grizzly bears," said he, glaring at the big St. Bernard's, "'took a hold of me, he nearly was my death,' says he. I thought his eyes would pop out of his head. He seemed so wrought up about it. He rolled me around in the dirt he did," says Jimmy Jocks and I couldn't get up. It was low," says Jimmy Jocks, making a face like he had a bad taste in his mouth. Low, that's what I call it. Bad form, you understand, young man. Not done in my set. And low. He growled way down in his stomach, and puffed himself out, panting and blowing like he had been on a run. I'm not a street-fighter," he says, scowling at a St. Bernard marked champion, and when my rheumatism is not troubling me, he says, I endeavor to be civil to all dogs, so long as they are gentlemen. Yes, sir," said I, for even to me he had been most affable. At this we had come to a little house, off by itself, and Jimmy Jocks invites me in. This is their trophy-room, he says, where they keep their prizes. Mine, he says, rather grand-like, are on the sideboard. Not knowing what a sideboard might be, I said, Indeed, sir, that must be very gratifying. But he only wrinkled up his chops as much as to say, It is my right. The trophy-room was as wonderful as any public-house I ever see. On the walls was pictures of nothing but beautiful St. Bernard dogs, and rows and rows of blue and red and yellow ribbons. And when I asked Jimmy Jocks why there was so many more of blue than of the others, he laughs and says, because these kennels always win. And there was many shining cups on the shelves, which Jimmy Jocks told me were prizes won by the champions. Now, sir, might I ask you, sir, says I, what is a champion?" At that he panted, and breathed so hard I thought he would bust himself. My dear young friend, says he, wherever have you been educated, a champion is a—a champion, he says. He must win nine blue ribbons in the open class. You follow me? that is, against all comers. Then he has the title before his name, and they put his photograph in the sporting papers. You know, of course, that I am a champion, says he. I am champion Woodstock Wizard III, and the two other Woodstock wizards, my father and uncle, were both champions. But I thought your name was Jimmy Jocks, I said. He laughs right out at that. That's my kennel name, not my registered name, he says. Why, certainly you know that every dog has two names. Now, for instance, what's your registered name and number? says he. I've got only one name, I says. Just Kid. Woodstock Wizard puffs at that and wrinkles up his forehead and pops out his eyes. Who are your people? says he. Where is your home? At the stable, sir, I said. My master is the second groom." At that, Woodstock Wizard III looks at me for quite a bit, without winking, and stares all around the room over my head. Oh, well, says he at last, you're a very civil young dog, says he, and I blame no one for what he can't help which I thought was most fair and liberal. And I have known many bull-terriers that were champions, says he, though as a rule they mostly run with fire-engines and to fighting. For me, I wouldn't care to run through the streets after a hose-cart, nor to fight, says he, but each to his taste. I couldn't not help thinking that if Woodstock Wizard the Third tried to follow a fire-engine, he would die of apoplexy, and, seeing he'd lost his teeth, it was lucky he had no taste for fighting. But after his being so condescending, I didn't say nothing. "'Anyway,' says he, "'every smooth-coated dog is better than any hairy old camel like those St. Bernard's. And if ever you're hungry down at the stables, young man, come up to the house, and I'll give you a bone. I can't eat them myself, but I bury them around the garden from force of habit, and in case a friend should drop in. Ah, I see my mistress coming, he says, and I bid you good day. I regret, he says, that our different social position prevents our meeting frequent, for you're a worthy young dog with a proper respect for your betters, and in this country there's precious few of them have that. Then he waddles off, leaving me alone and very sad, for he was the first dog in many days that had spoken to me. But since he showed, seeing that I was a stable-dog, he didn't want my company, I waited for him to get well away. It was not a cheerful place to wait, the trophy-house. The pictures of the champions seemed to scowl at me and ask what right such as I had even to admire them. And the blue and gold ribbons and the silver cups made me very miserable. I had never won no blue ribbons or silver cups, only stakes for the old master to spend in the publics. And I hadn't won them for being a beautiful, high quality dog, but just for fighting, which, of course, as Woodstock Wizard the Third says, is low. So I started for the stables, with my head down and my tail between my legs, feeling sorry I had ever left the master. But I had more reason to be sorry before I got back to him. The trophy-house was quite a bit from the kennels, and as I left it I see Miss Dorothy and Woodstock Wizard the Third walking back toward them, and also that a big St. Bernard, his name was Champion Red Elfberg, had broke his chain and was running their way. When he reaches old Jimmy Jocks, he lets out a roar like a grain steamer in a fog, and he makes three leaps for him. Old Jimmy Jocks was about a fourth his size, but he plants his feet and curves his back, and his hair goes up around his neck like a collar. But He never had no show at no time, for the grizzly bear, as Jimmy Jocks had called him, lights on old Jimmy's back and tries to break it, and old Jimmy Jocks snaps his gums and claws the grass, panting and groaning awful. But he can't do nothing, and the grizzly bear just rolls him under him, biting and tearing cruel. The odds was all that Wizard Woodstock the Third was going to be killed. I had fought enough to see that. But not knowing the rules of the game among champions, I didn't like to interfere between two gentlemen who might be settling a private affair, and, as it were, take it as presuming of me. So I stood by, though I was shaking terrible, and holding myself in like I was on a leash. But at that, Woodstock Wizard the Third, who was underneath, sees me through the dust, and calls very faint, Help you, he says. Take him in the hind leg, he says. He's murdering me, he says. And then the little Miss Dorothy, who was crying and calling to the kennelmen, catches at the red Elfberg's hind legs to pull him off, and the brute, keeping his front pats well in Jimmy's stomach, turns his big head and snaps at her. So that was all I asked for, thank you. I went up under him. It was really nothing. He stood so high that I had only to take off about three feet from him and come in from the side, and my long, punishing jaw, as Mother was always talking about, locked on his woolly throat, and my back teeth met. I couldn't shake him, but I shook myself, and every time I shook myself there was thirty pounds of weight tore at his windpipes. I couldn't see nothing for his long hair, but I heard Jimmy Jocks puffing and blowing on one side, and munching the brute's leg with his old gums. Jimmy was an old sport that day, was Jimmy, or Woodstock Wizard the Third, as I should say. When the Red Elfberg was out and down, I had to run, or those kennelmen would have had my life. They chased me right into the stables, and from under the hay I watched the head groom take down a carriage-whip and order them to the right about. Luckily, master and the young grooms were out, or that day there would have been fighting for everybody. Well, it nearly did for me and the master. Mr. Wyndham, sir, comes raging to the stables. I'd half killed his best prize-winner, he says, and had Otter be shot, and he gives the master his notice. But Miss Dorothy, she follows him, and says it was his red Elfberg that began the fight, and that I'd saved Jimmy's life, and that old Jimmy Jocks was worth more to her than all the St. Bernards in the Swift's mountains, wherever they may be and that I was her champion, anyway. Then she cried over me most beautiful, and over Jimmy Jocks, too, who was that tied up in bandages he couldn't even waddle. So, when he heard that side of it, Mr. Wyndham, sir, told us that if Nolan put me on a chain, we could stay. So it came out all right for everybody but me. I was glad the master kept his place, but I'd never worn a chain before and it disheartened me. But that was the least of it, for the quality dogs couldn't forgive my whipping their champion, and they came to the fence between the kennels and the stables and laughed through the bars, barking most cruel words at me. I couldn't understand how they found it out, but they knew. After the fight, Jimmy Jocks was most condescending to me and he said the grooms had boasted to the kennelmen that i was a son of regent Royal, and that when the kennelmen asked who was my mother they had had to tell them that too perhaps that was the way of it but however the scandal got out and every one of the quality dogs knew that i was a street dog and the son of a black-and-tan these Misalliances will occur, said Jimmy Jocks in his old fashioned way, but no well bred dog, says he, looking most scornful at the Saint Bernards, who were howling behind the palings, would refer to your misfortune before you, certainly not cast it in your face. I myself remember your father's father when he made his debut at the Crystal Palace. He took four blue ribbons and three specials. But no sooner than Jimmy would leave me, the St. Bernards would take to howling again, insulting mother and insulting me, and when I tore at my chain, they, seeing they were safe, would howl the more. It was never the same after that. The laughs and the jeers cut into my heart, and the chain bore heavy on my spirit. I was so sad that sometimes I wished I was back in the gutter again, where no one was better than me, and some nights I wished I was dead. If it hadn't been for the master being so kind, and that it would have looked like I was blaming mother, I would have twisted my leash and hanged myself. End of chapter five, part one.